Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This week, Max Gulker, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. We're going to talk about, get this, Austrian economics, Hayek, Elizabeth Warren and why she's wrong, the Yang Gang, and fish. You have to check this out. Max, good Hello. to see you. Good to see you. Thank you. Uh, so when I told my guys that we were going to spend an hour talking about jam bands as a metaphor for the market process, they <laughs> they stared blankly at me, right? Like I was an idiot. Yeah. So so we'll see how this goes. But but we were uh, we were talking at Porkfest, which is a gathering of of pretty hardcore. Uh, libertarians who are repopulating the state of New Hampshire exactly. in hopes of making it Galt's Gulch. <laughs> and uh, I was in, enthusing about my love for the Grateful Dead, and you were enthusing about your your love for fish. And obviously there's a there's a generational connection between these two bands. And, sure. and I actually think that the metaphor is quite apt. But but before we get into that, I uh, why don't you tell everybody you're a you're a senior economist at the american institute for economic research indeed uh tell me a, a little bit about yourself yeah. and about uh this this wonderful place in in yeah. bearing north so, what is it where is it uh in great barrington massachusetts it is the literal southwest corner of massachusetts it's people in boston think that Massachusetts ends in Amherst, Springfield. There's another hour left of Massachusetts after that, and we're all the way on that side. And that's um, like real America, right? Exactly. <laughs> I tend to, I'm from Indiana, and I tend to tell people it's more like the upper Midwest than it is like New England yeah. in terms of the people, um, at least. So I'm really fortunate to have found this place, and I think the theme, really, uh, that you're talking about is sort of you know, responding to, to accidents, really, in a way, um, responding to what's not predictable. Um, I went to college at the University of Michigan after I grew up in Indiana. I studied economics. I fell in love with economics basically from like day one of Econ 101. Um, and that's the very, you know, sort of mainstream supply and demand curve Econ 101 that you get. And, um, and at that point, I was I was, you know, kind of planning everything. And I said, I'm going to go work for a couple of years then I'm going to go get go to grad school. And um, I got into Stanford, which is obviously a very, you know, highly regarded program and got there. And that's when, like, life really started throwing unexpected things at me for the first time. And, um, you know, I went in thinking I was going to be this famous professor and have have, you know, uh, this body of work with my name on it and. And all these things. And I got there and, you know, had this very mathematical um, kind of bent to it. That's really the, the 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 mainstream kind of what they do. And, um, you know, I thought I was good at math coming in. I'm probably pretty good at math. I found out what really good at math meant. And um, I found out that I wasn't really suited to a life of um, do something groundbreaking in the next three years. Um, come see us if you need, uh, you know, if you need help or anything like that. Um, that, that, that wasn't, you know, that I, I tended to think in sort of smaller chunks and that kind of thing. I, I got my degree. Um, I studied kind of technology and markets and applied microeconomics. Um, and I went back to work in the private sector for a bunch of years. Um, you know, politically, the other interesting thing about me is I was raised kind of in the conservative heartland. Um, 
by kind of post-hippie, very left-wing parents. And so I kind of had this, this weird juxtaposition. I really didn't know much about libertarianism. Um, my education at Stanford, you know, th this kind of shocks people now, sort of our friends, that, you know, we never heard the name Hayek or Mises or, or, or people like that. Um, that. That is shocking that, yeah, that, right? that the Hoover Institution is based at Stanford. I would, I would not really thinking much about it. Stanford, to me, would, would at least provide a balanced view of economics, but apparently not. Well, they, they're educating you to basically publish highly quantitative cutting edge work in like a few journals. Yeah. That's kind of what the vanguard of the field there there is doing. Um, but, you know, I, I and, and so I was always I, I had always kind of moderated. And I think I had the gift um, in kind of growing up with people that were very different than my parents of getting different messages and saying like, well, okay, I like all these people. So maybe there's something going on other than one of them is wrong or one of them is stupid or, or that kind of thing. And so, so it's possible that people on right. far sides of an argument, one of them might not right. be evil. Uh, right. Exactly. And, and I, and I developed almost, I think sort of an intellectual interest in thinking about, okay, why do people disagree? What's the point of departure? That kind of thing. Um, and, and at this point, you're you're coming at it kind of as a well, as a moderate. It's like lefty. a center. It's like a Democrat voter, I would say. Um, not a little. Not not. Um, yeah, I, I would call my mom today. Like, uh, I, I think I may have talked her out of liking Elizabeth Warren, but we'll see. Um, but um, I, I was never quite there. But actually, a sort of transformative moment for me, right when I was getting my PhD or right afterwards, was um, Obama getting elected and. I didn't like George W. Bush. I thought he was, you know, doing a bad job. I, and I thought here was this guy that was going to bring good governance and unite people. And it was like a year later that I saw that that wasn't happening. And I was fortunate enough, I guess, to sort of take a step back and say, everybody blames, you know, the other party. Everybody, And this looks like the mirror image of what was going on with Bush. And I thought to myself, maybe it's not possible to be a good president. Yeah. Maybe there's something systemic. Um, and then I started almost accidentally happening upon other strands of economics that really made me think. I was, I was working in the private sector. I was doing consulting um, for lawyers and, you know, big fi financial litigation around 2008. You can imagine that was kind of interesting. And um, I don't remember when I happened upon it was it was doing research for a consulting project, um, Hayek's paper, The Use of Knowledge in Society. And I knew Hayek. I knew he didn't like Keynes. I knew, you know, that kind of thing. But um, is, is that Milton Keynes or right, John, no, or yeah, John exactly. Maynard? Right, I, I, um, I think on Twitter I said something like Adam Rothbard is spinning in her grave or something like <laughs> that. <laughs> so... Um, Anyway, that uh, so so I, I think a lot of your your viewers, listeners are going to know a little bit about that. But um, Hayek was somebody who kind of amazingly saw the world as this kind of complex network before that was something people talked about and thought about kind of how information uh, flowed through it and thought about how in the middle you can't plan out what's going to happen once you get to you know, millions of people, especially, you know, I, I wrote about last year, the job guarantee, which was this kind of insane big ticket plan from the left. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, if we had an economy of 100 people, this might not be a bad idea. 
you might you might be able to execute this. Um, and and Hayek had a sense, I think, in some ways that a lot of us, even who agree with him, don't quite have. We have to turn on like our real thinking brains to do what he does. Um, that basically, if I'm a central planner and I'm telling everybody in this room what they're going to do, I know way less unavoidably, inescapably than um, sort of the collection of dispersed knowledge that everybody has. And almost by just law at that point, I'm going to come to worse outcomes. The way I put it to people now is what if the government had to find you a job and got your resume and that's all they knew about you? Um, that was like the biggest intellectual lightning strike of my life. That was like one of the few times that I read something and said, oh, yeah, okay. Well, yeah. that's that is the thing for people to read if you want to try to understand the entire body of of Hayek's work mm -hmm. and a lot of it's pretty complicated and and it's it's a little bit of a slog because of his his German language yeah. roots but this short little essay I think it's yeah. five five pages maybe yeah. Um, and by the way, there's a tradition on this show. Whenever mm -hmm. I mention Hayek, people have to drink. So, All right. <laughs> so we're, so we're going to take a break. But uh, so so this this idea, you went from basically thinking, and it is kind of the the good progressive dream that if we just found the right people, right, and they're. They're a little bit smarter than us because they all went to Stanford right. and have their PhDs. Exactly. And, and I was pretending to be one of them. And if we, could, if we could just give them enough power and discretion to fix things, things will get better. Right. And, and that, was, that was why you, you supported Barack Obama. Exactly. And it was, you know, and, and, and right around then when I saw that that wasn't going to happen and I saw it pretty quickly... I thought to myself, okay, what are the, you know, what are the things my parents have always, you know, taught me to care? What are the things that I think are sort of the, the, the well-meaning progressive agenda? Helping poor people, access to services like education and healthcare. Um, and I thought, what progress has the government made in my life since 1978 when I was born? Almost nothing. And, and, and that's actually a message that I have for my progressive friends now. Like is other the things that that, you know, are considered big victories happen from the bottom up, like society's views on gay people, for instance, which is really about individuals getting to know each other um, and, and who they are. So. In, in, in any event, I think I, I think I, that really got me almost politically disinterested in a way. I thought, well, we're not you know, we're not going to solve these problems. Um, cheers, certainly. By the yes, way. yeah, yeah. Cheers to, to to Frederick. Yeah. Um. This, by the way, um, this style might um, impress you or or distress you, but this is this is something we obsess about on this show. It's mm -hmm. a it's a hazy double IPA. It's delicious. By one of my favorite breweries, uh, Other Half, <laughs> and it's a it it itself is a great metaphor. For beautiful things that happen in unplanned economies, right? Um, because there is a there is a heated argument within the brewing community. Um, there is a generation of brewers that despise this style. They're like, "That's not beer, right? Um, how dare you do that to right. to my beloved uh, West Coast IPA?" Yeah. And and to me, it's a it's a great example of of things that can happen that could never have been planned, could never right. have been conceived of, right? Just five years ago, this this would not be a thing. Exactly. Um, 
And, and, and speaking of not planned and conceived of, I got to a point where I was a little bit through with New York. I was a little bit through with consulting. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. And I kind of came, went up to the Berkshires, had a friend there. Um, Berkshires are, are where Great Barrington is in Massachusetts. Beautiful. Highly recommend it. Um, and thought I was going to take a little break for like a couple months maybe and, and plot out what I was going to do next. And I did not know there was a think tank there. Um, and a friend of mine one day said, oh, I was in uh, the sauna the gym, talking to this guy and he works for an economic think tank in town. I said, no, he doesn't. Um, and that was actually at a point right before um, the folks who lead us now um, came in, Ed Stringham and Jeffrey Tucker, who people, um, fans of the show will know. Jeffrey's been on the show, Jeffrey yes. Tucker. Yes. Um, we will get... Uh, Ed Stringham on the show at some point. That would, I think that would be that would be terrific. Ed's written a book about private governance that I think actually is another thing that answered a lot of my questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, I fell in with those guys, and I, you know, already become a little bit enthused by Hayek. I had discovered some other work that's by folks associated with something called the Santa Fe Institute, which is about complexity in economics, which is really Hayek, except Hayek says you can't do a lot of mathematical modeling. They do a lot of mathematical. Yeah. I've actually never gotten into the technical side of it much, but the intuition is so complimentary that um, it all it, it's another thing that kind of reshuffled my deck a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, I knew that um, I, I, I knew enough to be intrigued and I could see that they were fairly radical that that, um, you know, and, and I didn't you know, I like people like Ludwig von Mises. I had heard the name. Um, I knew there was some place in the south that had his name. I knew that. um you know, and, and but I didn't really know much about these thinkers. I didn't really know much about their approach. Um, and I ended up with um, bosses, basically, who trusted me and who let me kind of flail about and find my way a little bit. And, you know, I, I, I was on board enough with what we were doing from the beginning that that was fine. And it started occurring to me that a lot of the stuff that my parents and my friends and for a long time I sort of thought government should be able to deliver that are good things um, could be delivered a lot more successfully if we would trust our society, our, you know, markets and people acting freely and cooperating freely to do. Um, it's just that it's not a plan and that doesn't intuitively register with people. Right yeah, now. well, it's not a central plan. And exactly. you used a phrase that, that I think is a Stringham phrase, governance, not government mm -hmm. and and i i think we do a pretty lousy job of explaining the governance side of that yes. the fact that that even if there isn't an elizabeth warren plan to restructure mm -hmm. restructure the tech industry it doesn't mean that there's not rules doesn't mean that there's not accountability it doesn't mean that that people will will sort of yep. spontaneously develop pathways to, to figure stuff out. And that's the entire Hayek project. Exactly. And I think that one place where, where the economists kind of in this, in this area can really do a little bit better is by talking to people, not just about how it's going to spontaneously happen, but how it spontaneously happens yeah, yeah. and how we might facilitate it spontaneously happening yeah. and that kind of thing. That, and that's like the, uh, the, the thing that sort of the, the, the fundamental disease in politics, and there are there are yeah. plenty of elements in politics, sure. but 
but the phrase something has to be done. Right, we got to do something. And it and it sort of a, it sort of assumes away the fact that every day there are billions of people right. doing something about like poverty. You just right. your, your last mm-hmm. piece was on poverty and specifically yep. what to do about persistent poverty in in San Francisco yep. and we're all reading about the horror stories there. Yeah. Um, but everybody that's running for president and you've written a lot of piece, a couple <laughs> pieces that I want to get into yeah. everybody that's running for president on the democratic side. And by the way, the Republicans are equally guilty of all these things. The, the presumption is, is that here's a problem. It could be a real problem. Mm-hmm. It, it let's, let's right. assume that it is a real problem. Right. Um, politicians are capable of, of proposing not real problems right. as well. Sure. Um, and, you know, they come up with a plan and it's always, you know, God help us. It's usually a five year plan and mm-hmm. and there's a there's a spreadsheet yeah. and and there's a podium. But the this gets back to your your original disillusionment that yeah. that we if we just elected Elizabeth Warren, she right. She's smart enough to restructure Amazon. 60 or 70 plans on her website. Yeah. <laughs> and, and let's start there because yeah. you, you wrote a piece sort of. Uh, and, and by the way, I love your tone, yeah. and I love the way that you take technical, technical, that's a hard word to say. My entire <laughs> staff is yeah, lacking yeah. Yeah, exactly. now. Um, complex economics mm-hmm. and, and apply it to a public policy problem in a way yeah. that your, your pieces are short. And, yeah. And they're, they're understandable. But you, you ask some pretty tough questions of Elizabeth Warren, um, who thinks that, that, you know, if we just like, break Amazon up, everything's going to be fine. Yeah. So, so this actually speaks to like the way we teach people economics too. And what I've like, what I've increasingly decided is a huge problem in the way that we teach it is that, and this is what I fell in love with too, is, you know, the econ 101 starts with perfect competition market under these conditions, markets are perfect. Right. And that's going to lead to the best possible outcome. And then the rest and, and, a lot of people on the left say, well, that's, you know, brainwashing people about markets, except that the rest of the book is about market failures. And here are the ways that the real world departs from those assumptions. And so the implication is it's the government's job to make it more like chapter one. Um, that has sort of, that idea and that approach with the economy has sort of been like the centrist, like center left, center right consensus for a long time. And the entirety of neoclassical economics really, yes. you know, is about 50, equilibrium analysis. Sure. Yeah. And right. And it's and it's all about the outcome, about uh, about where it's theoretically supposed to go, which is which is an important thing, too, for us. Um, what I appreciate in a sense about Warren is that she shows us what happens when you take that to its logical extreme. So Elizabeth Warren is a lawyer. I used to work with a lot of lawyers. She's not necessarily like them politically, but. There's this sort of make it happen, this is what I want kind of mentality. And I think in her mind, she says, oh, well, you know, wh- we need to just write down plans for everything. And even, you know, my mother, my, my, my left-wing canary in the coal mine said to me, I went to her website and it's ridiculous. How does she think we're going to do all of this? And, you know, it, it's, if you go, it, it, it's almost funny. There's 60 or 70 basically white papers sitting there. And the, the, I actually, if you made me choose up or down between Sanders or Warren, I'd take Sanders because I think that he, your career is over. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I've already said things that, 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 that alienate everybody on all sides, but no, um, 
I think Sanders wishes he could dismantle the private sector, but he knows he can't, and he kind of loses interest in it, and he just sort of thinks about his big plans. He's like an ideologue, and she's she thinks she's smart right, enough that right. she could actually. She wants to run the private yeah. sector. There's that level of hubris that right. that even Hillary Clinton didn't have. Right, exactly. That, that um, yeah. Oh, corporations are great as long as they do what I want them to do, yeah. and I know what they should all do. And the problem with that is she has these things like accountable capitalism that says, well, you have to be accountable not just to your you know, shareholders, but your workers and consumers. And on its head, I think people hear that and they say, great, except you can't implement that without an enormous amount of discretionary power in the government. And so all you've done is you've put all of these linkages together between the private sector and the public sector and the other school of thought that I got introduced to when I, you know, fell in with this crowd is called Public Choice. And it's, um, you know, James Buchanan and others. We can, we can drink to James. Um, yeah, here's to James. That really just says, you know, people, people misrepresent it all the time. But it really just says a government is a big organization of people all with their own incentives and ideas and information just like any other organization and so saying the government is going to do this um you have to break that down and say and 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 think about it and a lot of times you lose a lot of meaning when you treat it as a singular thing and by the way we do that it's the state this the state that yeah and uh, and i think we actually lose a lot of understanding with that too so except for the deep state I mean, exactly that's, well yes, that's yes, a thing yeah, yeah <laughs> um so so by, by the way, so I don't know if you know Ed Lopez. Mm -hmm. uh, um, he is a public choice professor, yeah, and, yeah. and and we did an entire episode, sort of yeah. talking about the the contradiction of of you know professional economists in a chattering class. When James right. Buchanan won the Nobel Prize, right. they mocked him for the simplicity of his theory. Mm -hmm. Politicians are just as self interested as the rest of us, right? And they're like, really for that? But then they spent the rest of their time and their entire careers mm -hmm. denying that that yeah. was true. Yeah. And and the entire macroeconomic project and all of these grand designs essentially exactly. is denying the fact that you can get weird outcomes because people in power are just as self-interested as the rest of I us. I think weird outcomes is such a key thing there because... It, weird, I, I, weird, dangerous, and... It, yeah. Once in a while, horrific. Well, and, and, and weird in the sense that people, they, they don't make sense to people. They, people see bad outcomes and they say a bad person must have caused that. Yeah. And the thing is, once you get to an organization of a certain size, that just isn't true necessarily. And that's not necessarily true of the state. That's not necessarily true of the billionaires and Wall Street. And so it's really all sides, I think, have to be responsible for that a little bit. And... You know, they when when Warren and Sanders actually both do this is, you know, they they talk about billionaires in a way that suggests that there's like a room full of them, like mapping out how they're going to rig the system. Chomping cigars. Right. And saying, OK, so you take this and, and I'll do that and I'll call this person. And, you know, I do think the well-connected have more, you know, a disproportionate amount of political power. But. It's not necessarily because of intentional bad acts, right? It's, you know, I mean, this sounds silly, but think about if you went to the same school as elites who worked in government and you send your kids to the same piano teacher and you said, if you have enough just interactions, points of contact, which rich elites are just going to have with government, 
in subtle ways, decisions are going to start to change. And when that number gets big enough, you get these weird outcomes. And that's not to say it's not a problem. That's not to say it's not worth thinking about. But sitting there and saying these evil billionaires or billionaire tears or Occupy Wall Street or whatever is insidious and in that it misunderstands the problem. And it, it, it directs us in a path that's at best going to not do anything. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. there's definitely, I mean, there's a thing to the insiders that, that all populists rail about. And mm -hmm. it could be libertarian populists. Yeah. It could be Trump populists. It could be Sanders yeah. populists. And, and there's very much an insider um, thing that is, that is real in society. And I think it, it does uh, corrupt outcomes, particularly when it comes to politics, mm -hmm. because whether or not you and I like it, Jeff Bezos, yeah has better access exactly to senator so and so than we do and we're not going to change that right you know, a lot of a lot of policy and this, this is true with technology too especially is like let's try to make things like they were or like they ideally and and that never works you know and 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 i do a lot of thinking about technology too and and you just that's people's instinct you know well these Uber drivers don't get healthcare, so we need to make their jobs like a sort of archetype factory worker from the 1950s who works in the same factory for 40 years. And I, I think it's funny that all of a sudden the left is pining for like an idealized version of the 1950s in a way. And I, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, but it's it's idealized. Cause, yeah, exactly. Because exactly. we didn't live it long. We we're a lot poorer. Yep. And that that uh, cabal of insiders was still a thing. Yeah. And and they still derived at least a significant mm -hmm. part of their power from their relationship with government. Right. Um, but but let's yeah. let, let's wrap up on Elizabeth Warren sure, because sir. there's all sorts of other hubris we need oh, there's to plenty. touch. But um, and, and this is what this is what I like about your writing because in a lot of ways you're writing to your younger self because you're trying to explain to young progressives yeah. why it is that that breaking up. Amazon or Google, right. you know, fill in the blank. You do a lot of work on this stuff mm -hmm. that, you know, it, it might sound good emotionally, but the end user is going to get hurt. Right. Because she doesn't know how to do it. Right. And it's right. Most of our brains, other than maybe Hayek's, um, want to think about things as like cause and effect and linear narratives and things like that. And so when you don't have, um, you know, when you don't specify a plan, everybody's mind goes to, let me think of the worst case scenario that can happen. Whereas when you say, when, when you give a plan that, that you know, aspirationally has 100% coverage, then people's mind goes to like, okay, well, why don't you want to do that? Yeah. Um, and whereas usually the latter is worse than the former. Um, I worry with Warren that she could put together a sort of architecture of communication, but collaboration between the state and the private sector that like give it three or four more presidents and you could have like a state capitalist, you know, a, a China kind of. And I'm usually not the type to do those kind of alarmist yeah. projections. She actually and, and I'm usually sort of almost compulsively try to see the good intentions and everybody she really scares me well once you once you open that door i mean it, yeah this history tells us that once government gets involved in in the provision of x and in this right. case it's technology it's not right. like they're going away right because of all of this public choice dynamics and all right. of this stuff she she is probably 
my least favorite candidate of all the Democratic field. And I, I'll confess right now that I don't pay as much attention as I used to because yeah. one, it's really depressing. And two, I did it for a lot of years as a profession, right. politics. Right. I spent way too many lost years <laughs> trying to improve political outcomes. It's like me consulting, yeah. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, I'm, I mean, I, I, I think Tulsi Gabbard is really interesting and I, I, I sort of buy into uh, some of the reasons that the Democratic machine keeps her off the stage. Yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think Bernie is interesting but but quite dangerous in some of his fundamental beliefs. I'd say principled, but wrongly principled. Yeah. But that's like, I yeah. I do understand why Bernie bros exist because right. they, I, don't, I don't think, except for a few of them, I don't think they're socialists. I think mm-hmm. they like the fact that he's anti-establishment. They right. like the fact that he's still the same crazy guy that yeah. he was 40 years ago mm-hmm. when he was uh, drinking topless in the Soviet Union. <laughs> I unfortunately watched yeah. this video and I can't get it out of oh, my mind. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad I'm. Um, I, I may not be able to just haven't heard of it. But. It's, <laughs> um, but there are some interesting candidates, and you wrote you wrote a piece about another interesting candidate, candidate Andrew Yang, yeah, uh, former entrepreneur, and his mm-hmm. whole thing is to quote him, and I mm-hmm. I, I think I'm going to quote him right. Mm-hmm. I literally want to give people a thousand dollars, right, and that's the universal basic income, and he. He has an entire um, theory, and it's interesting that he comes from the t- tech world, but right. but he believes that technology is going to make us all un- unemployed and right. that, that someday in the not-too-distant future, yeah. we, you and I will be replaced by yeah. robots on this show, Yes, which it, it might, it, it, it'll probably be an improvement I mean, how can I be case, sure yeah. that you're not? Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, I may be. But, exactly. But you, you, you took him seriously. Right. And you you studied the the report right. um, issued on this subject. So explain to people mm-hmm. um, what Andrew Yang argues and, and right. why you think he's misguided. Right. So um, so Yang has a story and a solution basically that and 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 I you know his his fans on social media have, have reminded me he has these other policy proposals to absolutely the, the Yang gang the Yang gang and they're actually the best supporters of any politician to interact with online. They, they, they come yeah, I noticed that you these... said that, 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 that they're thoughtful and, yeah. and they'll engage you in arguments instead of just tweeting the, at you. You will be the first in the gulag. They'll, they'll, come at, they'll come at you like these kind of aggro young dudes and then they'll sort of, you'll, if you kind of answer their question and show them respect and they like actually want to hear why you think he's wrong and stuff. Um, but so he says that automation is going to um, is is basically going to put so many people out of a job that um, if we don't um, do some massive intervention, then you know it, money all the money is just going to flow to the hands of you know a few owners of the capital, the machines, and um, the way around that is a universal basic income, which is basically to give everybody a check for a thousand dollars a month. Now. So there's kind of two things, and there's something wrong with both of them. Because wealth will accumulate in a few hands, right? The rest of us won't have jobs. Won't have jobs. And it's a way won't of be able to contribute anything redistributing the wealth. Yes, exactly. Um, first problem is the technology story. So in 1980, if you had said we're going to lose a third of our manufacturing jobs and our population is going to go up by like half or something in, in 35, 40 years, you would say, "Oh my God." We have to do something, right? And um, 
that's what happened, and not as though we live in some kind of utopia, but there's about the same amount of unemployment as there was then. What happened? We switched to a different kind of economy. We gradually, in an evolutionary kind of way, uh, moved towards more of a service-based, information-based economy. Now, that is the underlying thing that's kind of causing a lot of the upheaval, kind of part of why we have the president we have. But all that to say... Because These aren't big events. Everybody, you know, the way Yang thinks about it is though you take the technology of tomorrow and you drop it on the world today, all of a sudden. Well, that's not what happens. These are all a series, you know, these are all thousands of events happening and people respond to those events in real time so that, you know, people tend to be pretty good at figuring out how they can contribute something in order to thrive, Right. And you can't sit there and plan out how that's going to happen when you're dealing with millions of people. But that's kind of the story he's telling. And the income side, now I've, you know, kind of looked at our welfare system too and things like that. And I will say that if somebody said to me, Max, let's take all of these ridiculous kind of insulting and paternalistic welfare programs that were started all the way back with Lyndon Johnson and... You know, and have basically not changed the poverty rate um, and cost double what it would cost to give people the money and just, you know, replace it with something like what Yang does for, you know, some kind of, you know, for for the poor. I would say do it tomorrow. Yeah. But. And that's and that's a basic economist's uh, economic efficiency kind of argument that assumes away politics. If you could replace. If you could replace a train wreck that, right. that we call the welfare right. state that, right. that has actually, I mean, you're being a little generous. I, <laughs> I think we've, I think we've made, we've created institutionalized yeah. poverty. Uh, and we've you, done if, so successively by having Republican and Democrat administrations say, well, they need to get married. Well, they need to eat vegetables. Yeah. Well, they need to, you know, and, and it's become this maze of like a hundred programs yeah. um, that are really, I think, condescending to the poor. Um, but, so, so in that sense, there's some merit to it. But then, you know, he's an entrepreneur and he gets very elevator pitchy with this stuff. And he gets very, this is my big idea that I'm going to bring, um, you know, to the world. And the thing is, first of all, unless you're, you know, like a kind of Sanders person who have their own kind of strange brand of macroeconomics, you got to finance this somehow. And, you is know, this, I, sh- I should ask, I don't yeah. know this. Is the Yang $1,000 a month uh, universal basic income? Mm-hmm. I assume that's an add-on on top of the existing welfare state. Or is he I, not, As is I he sit not here specific? today, I don't remember. I, he talks about savings from other programs, but the big way he wants to finance is, is a sales tax, is a VAT, value-added tax. Oof. And... Right. And so, and that's actually a Gee, who does that hit? Yeah. So I actually once in my, I, 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 my kryptonite on Twitter is, is, you know, I come up with funny things and think everybody needs to hear them. But, you know, once Yang said, tweeted something like, what are you going to do with a thousand dollars a month? And I just retweeted it and said, pay your VAT. Um, (laughs) And and, and not that it would cover the whole thing, but the the point is these things are not neutral. You have to talk about how you're going to finance them or if you're going to finance them. You have to talk about, um, you know, it, it, because at that point, what you're looking at basically is a transfer plus a welfare system plus some extra debt or something like that, not just give you $1,000 a month. And I think Yang's problem is, is that 
he sees himself as having contributed to the world by being an entrepreneur, which he has. But the problem, and the, this was probably my favorite title of anything I've written that I gave. It was We Thrive Based on Many Andrew Yangs, Not One. Um, entrepreneurship involves millions of people having ideas. Some yeah, of them are un- good. Unpack that, because I, I, yeah. I think it's a profound title. It is. It, 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 um, so... We don't know in advance which ideas are going to be right. We kind of we, it's good to have entrepreneurs who maybe think a little bit highly, more highly of their ideas than they are, because it kind of gives that energy. But we don't need them all to be right. Right. We need them to be tested in the market. We need them to be um, a, a, and to you know respond to each other and evolve in all of these in, in these profound ways. And he and, seems and we to need think, them. We need them to fail. Exactly. That's, and, and that's and, and that's a key part of your of your of your insight that I yeah, thought. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've talked to like the, the ability to fail yes. and to pick yourself up and try something else yep. is something that I think a lot of politicians, you know, politicians promise that you're never going to fail. Like right. you're never going to fail in life and you're never going to fail in your marriage and everything's right. going to be awesome. And right. and and if you just let us take charge, here's the right. dignity that you starve for right. but but frankly that moment that you fail and you figure out how to pick yourself up i think that's where dignity comes from right and it, it comes not just from that but let me explain it comes from when i fail you seeing it and learning from it mm-hmm. and me responding to it and and this kind of network you know this reverberating almost through this so it's not just uh it's like iterations of research and, and right failed paradigms and right. like oh but that idea was pretty interesting let right. me try that this way right you know if we let every school district decide how they're going to educate their kids you know there would be some some bad things that happen but after 20 years out and letting them copy each other we'd know how to educate kids a lot better than we do today and so that's what entrepreneurship really is. And I joke that, you know, I'm a bad entrepreneur. I wouldn't be a good entrepreneur. But because of that, I have the perspective to tell you why entrepreneurship is good. Yang basically thinks that he has good ideas and he needs a big idea to take to the people. The problem is there's only one president. Yeah. And so that's a lot of eggs to put in one basket. One that, president of the largest economy in the world right. Right, is which, going to bet the farm. Mm-hmm on one idea, universal right. basic income. Right. And even more than the deficit busting and that which is all important, what I really have a problem with, and this is with a lot of these candidates, is is almost just the, the, the continuing of the public discourse of uh, the solution to our problems is this, right? That's what everybody looks for. That's what we, we're kind of primed to look for. And that's what's increasingly not appropriate in our world that gets more complex, that gets more technological, that get everybody has a voice. You know, it, it, we can we can debate the New Deal all we want. I would say that these kinds of programs are even p- more poorly suited than they were a hundred years ago because of the ways that the world has changed. It is fascinating that that we that we particularly uh, AOC in the mm-hmm. context of the New Green Deal point to something. Um, from ancient times yeah, yeah, yeah. A, as a model for the future. And, and there, there does seem to be that, that, mm-hmm. that hunger for the simplicity of, you know, we're, we're all in this together and here's the plan. Let's move forward. Few things infuriate me more than the statement, we won World War II so we can do thing X that is totally different than beating another country in a war. Yeah. And I'm not even getting into who won World War II. But, uh, but 
you know, that's that, you know, nation states can beat other nation states at wars. They can do they can concentrate a lot of power onto one target. Right. You know, environmental issues, climate change, that kind of thing, whatever it is, it arises from billions of decisions. That's it's nothing like winning a war. Yeah. And and it's you know, and, and I think it's really damaging almost to the public dialogue. I, I don't necessarily think they're, they're, they know they're doing that. But um, but but that narrative is is, you know, I think is really confusing to a lot of people. Um, so so yeah. let's so let's 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 pivot. I think yeah, yeah. this this model like and, and <laughs> we're, we're suggesting that there is a model that that you can use to criticize proposed policies. Mm hmm. Uh, based primarily on the fact that no single person knows enough to right. redesign complex systems. This is yeah. the, the Hayekian insight. And, you know, we're pretty good at raging against the machine. We're mm -hmm. pretty good at, at criticizing, you know, dumb government pet tricks. Right. And they, they abound. Like, yeah. there's, there's nothing but government failure around us. Yeah. Um, but all that said, the... the uh, the persuasive sales pitch today mm -hmm. seems to be um, politicians that say they want more power so they can do something right. for us. So explain this. Uh, ex explain this, and I, th I think the context of your yeah. your article about about poverty in San Francisco is, is yeah. probably a good place to to pivot to what I really want to talk right. about. Um, we need to explain to people who are attracted to this power argument. Mm -hmm. All yeah. about the beautiful things that can happen yeah. when people are free to figure stuff out, fail, mm -hmm. succeed, help each other, all the things that we right. know that free people do. Right. Um, that's the sales pitch we're not making very well. Exactly. And, you know, the, the other thing, the other part of the, the standard argument of every politician is this is the other group from you that's to blame. For that, that almost oh, yeah, so, so always you know, a it, demonization of exactly fill in the blank. It could and, be, and that's the, could be billionaires. And, and it's it, it's uncomfortable to say this, but billionaires for the left right now occupy the same role that Mexican immigrants and Chinese trading partners occupy for Trump. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and that doesn't mean that they're not, you know, less vulnerable than immigrants or whatever. But it, it really is the same thing. Now, in San Francisco, there is this problem with entrenched homelessness, and that's happened for, again, a complex set of reasons. There's, you know, it, it's the right loves to talk about how permissive San Francisco is about everything. It's true. Um, the weather's nice. And at the same time, they had this tech boom where everything got really expensive, but the people already living in the city wanted to keep the city. There it is again, exactly the same as it was. And had all these zoning rules and all these, and rents are now like it's like one bedroom thirty seven hundred dollars or something like that. Um, anyway, I you know I lived there for a couple of years when I went to Stanford, which is nearby, and it was already if you went to the Tenderloin, which is sort of the downtown, like right next to downtown in San Francisco, and really a part of the city people go to too. That's the interesting thing is that this is all happening where people. This is not happening, you know, in in isolated neighborhoods. Um, it was already more intense let's just say um in terms of the homelessness the sort of public drug use than anything i'd ever seen a dozen years ago i was there last year and it was like nothing i have ever seen um and it, it's horrific today like it's it is. one of my favorite cities yeah. uh historically in the world yep and terry and i my wife yeah we won't 
we won't go to to that part of it's, San Francisco. It's tough, and you know, it, it was. Um, I remember um, Nick Gillespie was interviewing Dan Carlin, who I'm a huge fan of, the history podcaster, and he has some libertarian sensibilities, but he said something like, you know, how are we going to, what are we going to do about homelessness? And that's what people are after is what is the magic solution? And even sort of libertarians, free market advocates like to say, get rid of the zoning laws, which yes, they should get rid of the crazy zoning laws in San Francisco, but I don't necessarily think that someone suffering from mental illness and, you know, horrible drug addiction and because rent goes down by 500 bucks is going to, you know, that's going to help people move to the city, you know, middle, you know, middle-class people. I was sort of, I, I was thinking about it for a long time after I was there. And, and one day, a few weeks ago, I was on a flight actually coming back um, from somewhere. I started kind of surfing the internet and I found this charity that basically, it's called At the Crossroads. And basically they get to know people. They take, they especially target kids who have had lots of trouble, have been kicked out of other programs and they kind of go out in the street and start talking to them. And they one, one at a time. Yeah, one at a time. And who they are and what their goals are. And they don't have any set agenda. And you know, they say they offer unconditional support. That, you know, to the right, that's supposed to be anathema. And part of what I sort of thought about um in writing about that is it's not really unconditional. It's it's they will interface with them you know, unconditionally, but they have a human being who knows them, who, like our friend Hayek, can respond, you know, to facts on the ground that... He would, he would well, actually, Michael Polanyi would call yep. it personal knowledge. Yes. Uh, the, the knowledge of time and place and, yeah. and the entire yeah. Austrian understanding of knowledge is like, if you have this theory of poverty, but you actually haven't spoken to mm -hmm. individual people right. that are struggling with poverty you you you're you don't know you don't know what you're talking about right yeah yeah and, and it's funny that um you know the people who most avidly talk about workers quote unquote are probably the people who know the fewest people who fit into that category in right. their minds that you know yeah they've uh, never yeah. actually worked one of those jobs. right right exactly yeah. like um so so right so they they get to know people they think about what kind of services they need they and and really there's nothing more accountable than a social relationship in some ways and the kind of sticks and carrots that you can, that you can get from that. Yeah. Um, even if, you know, and, and you are going to be there tomorrow, whether the person does X, Y, or Z, because it's not one rule to everybody. If you have a job guarantee, you know, a really salient criticism is, you know, how can you be fired if you don't show up late? Well, that's because there's one rule that everybody gets a job. If you show up late to meeting with this person, there's all sorts of social pressure of decisions about aid that can be made. There's, you know, it's like a million little pieces of accountability instead of one big piece. Yeah. Um, it's hard to measure the success of these things. This thing is small. It's, I don't want to act like it's, you know, a panacea. I, I think that, you know, again, the debate is sort of what is going to be our solution to this problem. And it's, you know, we need a thousand small solutions, but... You well, know, it's like almost like a challenge everybody, you know, myself certainly included, to just like get to know one person and yeah, there's, there's, what would happen. There's probably like two categories of solutions, yeah. but but you're suggesting a yeah. a level of humility that yes, that there's no silver bullet to any social problem mm -hmm. we have. Um, we could certainly, and we libertarians are very good right. at identifying like um, problems created right. by government barriers, government regulations, government uh, prohibitions, and yeah. 
you know, in San Francisco, you yeah. could certainly point at um, uh, limits yeah. on housing as one problem. The war on drugs is another problem, and yeah. we could probably tick off ten more. <laughs> sure, but but the other half of that, and this this is this is going to be my somewhat inelegant pivoting to uh, the beauty of of the process right. of, of free people figuring right, stuff right. out. Um, the other half is is very bottom up. It's face to face. It's right. person to person, and I I think there's a lot of and I've said this a thousand times on this show. I, I think there's a lot of fans of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yeah. and and who knows who else who believe that democratic socialism is that bottom-up process. They believe right. that it's person-to-person -person, uh, working together, solving problems. Because their mental model is like five people. Yeah. Exactly. And, and we're the guys. Yeah. Very much opposed to any brand of socialism, right. democratic or otherwise, who have this this theory of of how it is that 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 free people solve problems yeah. and if you don't believe me yep you got to go to the parking lot of a grateful dead concert because it should be dangerous it so should good. be chaos yep it should be um a place where where um normal respectable people don't mm -hmm. go but when you go there you discover a thriving marketplace yep. of people that respect each other that respect each other's property. They don't hurt each other. They don't right. take their stuff. Um, they trade. They cooperate, yep. and they care not just about themselves but about the right. community. Right. And, yeah. And and that you know it, it's what really strikes me is that exchange. You know, capitalism. I would say forms the backbone of that network. But then there's also, because of that interaction and that trust and that commonality, you know, there's basically a lot of governance and safety net kind of kind of features that are being voluntarily fulfilled by, you know, these people who are basically driving around following a band from concert to concert. And, you know, that's. You know, sometimes I wonder when we talk about capitalism, I don't want a new name. I don't I don't want us to have a new name. I sometimes wonder, do we need a new name? Because people and even even our folks often just think of it as, you know, corporations and commerce. You know, I kind of want to think about free society and the freedom to cooperate, to act, to, to do all of that. To me, that's part of it. And and part of sort I, of I my like, dream is to I like the word take, cooperation. Yeah. And, and part part of my real dream is to take you know, deadheads or fish heads, these hippies who probably would ask them about capitalism and they wouldn't have something nice to say is not to change their minds, but to convince them they are part of capitalism. Yeah. Um, and actually convince our friends they're part of capitalism, too. Yeah. At the same time. But, um, you know, it's not an aesthetic that that a lot of people um, necessarily like. We I, I'm not but, a, I'm not a fan of the word. Yeah. I, I don't think that yeah. that the market process is about capital accumulation. It's one mm -hmm. of the one of the consequences of the market process yeah. is that. Uh, successful entrepreneurs right. accumulate capital and they reinvest that and that's a right. very beneficial dynamic but mm -hmm. but going back to the the to the grateful dead parking lot yeah um there is no government right but there's governance right and and uh, i i'm a, I'm a huge deadhead as you know and yeah. and i i totally did a deep dive in this uh this Grateful Dead series that was on Amazon. Long, I think it was called A Long Strange Trip. Yeah, I watched it. Um, and there was interviews with 
Jerry Garcia that I'd never seen before. And, and it sort of emphasized the fact that he was, uh, he was an anarchist. And he was an anarchist, not in the sense that he wanted to burn anything down or sucker punch right. anybody. He was an anarchist in the sense that he wanted to let everybody in his community, yeah. and this is a guy with a lot of power in his community, he wanted to let them make their own decisions. Yeah. And he, he very adamantly said, I'm not going to tell anybody what to do. Yeah. And the, the net result of that was, was a very successful enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, they were always on the fortune, whatever, yep. as a band, um, you know, the, the Jerry Garcia's career has outlived him by at least 20 years now. Yep. And that's pretty impressive. And that community functioned in a, in a fairly effective and efficient way, yeah. uh, almost exclusively because he didn't want to tell them what to do. Right. And it seems counterintuitive. Right. Who's, who's running this show? And, it, and his point was nobody's running this mm-hmm. show. Yep. Um, um, yeah. And, 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 and it's important that it was, you know, we, we, we say anarchy and that's the absence again of government, not of governance. And I'm not a big fan of that word either. Yeah, I, yeah. I use it with some trepidation, even yeah. though Logan prefers when I use the word mm-hmm. because the technical meaning is absence of government. We've all got our favorite words. Yeah. Uh, you know, people, people like to say liberal. That's not what most people think a liberal is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I think like us coming from different kind of backgrounds, like I'll hear you describe things as conservative that I don't think of as conservative, yeah. but I totally agree with. Yeah. Um, and, you know. It, it, but when we use the word anarchy and, and you right. will, um, people in our community will, will call themselves anarcho-capitalists, right. which is a, is, a, is a mashup of two words yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that carry so much uh, misinformation and mismeaning. But when we use the word anarchy, we're, we're, what we're really talking about is peaceful cooperation. Right. Vol- yeah, co- and, and that's, I don't, that's I don't know why we don't use right. the phrase voluntary cooperation instead. And that, and to me, coming from you know a slightly different background, where I didn't grow up reading the same books and going to the same school as sort of a lot of people did, to me the 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 thing about individualism that gets me out of bed in the morning is the freedom to cooperate with the people you want to cooperate with. That to me is the engine, the lifeblood that kind of that kind of drives society. And, you know, I, I, I think that, um, right, you know, peop, the, the, the hippies in the lot of a dead show or a fish show or whatever um, are helping each other. They're transacting. They're, and it's without any top-down guidance, but it is with intentionality by the people, too. Yeah. And that's, I think, some of the th- part of what we miss sometimes is we do, we love to say, the market will take care of it or people will take care of it. And if you're already sort of bought in and you've already thought about market processes and these economists and things like that, you get that. I don't think a lot of people get that. And in fact, they get it so little that I really have a hard time sort of moving people on it really at all. And I, in, in all honesty, I think that's why Hayek, why we kind of say like, man, was he the best writer or was he... I don't know that it was really, you know, it, if I could accomplish one thing in my career, which I don't think I could accomplish, um, it would be presenting Hayek's thinking in a way that's like intuitively resonates with everybody. Yeah. Um, and it's hard because it's that bottom up complexity that I don't think our brains are quite most of ours, at least. Well, that's 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 why these stories yeah, and exactly. And I, I want to give people some context. Yeah. If you're not a deadhead, 
or a fish fan you mm -hmm. you probably don't know what the hell we're talking yeah. about and these these bands have very different styles yeah um but it, i think it's fair to say that that fish very much was a beneficiary yeah. of the grateful dead culture and 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 you took know. their format as a show, you yeah. know, as uh, for shows and tours and and that kind of thing too. Yeah, and it's it, and and the the, the logic of it was uh, essentially no one's going to play us on the radio, right? But we're gonna we're gonna build an enthusiastic audience mm -hmm. that is going to follow us from place to place. Right. Right. The Grateful Dead famously allowed their fans to record the shows right. and trade them, as, as did Fish. Until I mean, at basically, technology got to the point where that didn't. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't matter anymore yeah, cuz yeah. now now any of this stuff is out this there. It's out there an hour later on the internet, yeah. But so so you have the the you know, I have this community mm -hmm. that, that is packed up and their their life yeah. is is following these bands around and and necessarily a marketplace emerges right. in that culture and and when I describe the it's called Shakedown Street, but mm -hmm. when I describe the Grateful Dead parking lot, I'm talking about thousands of fans that have mm -hmm. dedicated a life to following this band and yep. they're selling t-shirts they're preparing food they're they're creating a complex marketplace yes. that that packs and unpacks every day yeah. depending on the show yep um, fish picked up that culture and and if you would go to a fish concert today or yep. this summer you will see you will see a vibrant culture of people that yeah. that are enthusiastically into the band yep. but they're also into the community that exactly. has evolved spontaneously around the band, and and yeah, and that's where you know I I, I love the Dead. I um, Garcia died about two years before I started getting exposed to a lot of this music. Um, should say for people who don't know that these bands, why do people follow them from concert to concert? Other than it's just fun to be on a road trip, is every concert's different. They play, you know, they have big cannons of songs, big songbooks. They improvise a ton, and that's sort of group improvisation rather than somebody soloing which hey look at that it's people on the ground responding to each other in real time what does that remind you of mm -hmm. um and yeah and and it you know it, it depends on the venue it depends on where it is you know it, it's it's interesting how all those things shape what emerges but um you know it, it, it's uh, um yeah, like I said in the beginning, my boss is Jeffrey Tucker, who is, you know, wears his suits with his bow ties and loves, you know, music from the Gilded Age. And I I dream of taking him to one of these shows where I know there's going to be a good emergent marketplace because you got the, the, the Jeffrey Tucker article about that would be epic. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> that he would write. Uh, and he's, and, and yeah. uh, for those who don't know him, he's yeah. he's very much into classical music yes. and and he he i think he respects the the, the technical acumen of, mm -hmm. of of correctly performing yeah. a a complex mm -hmm. um concerto yeah. um which in a lot of ways is the opposite of what we're talking about here and and you know at least with the grateful dead i mean the the fish has very different influences they're right, into yeah. to zappa and and all yeah, that, yeah. all of that kind of stuff but but the grateful dead were very much influenced by by john coltrane right Miles Davis, mm -hmm. bluegrass, Americana, like yeah. a lot of mashed up influences, yeah. but the the structure of jamming I think comes from jazz, right? And and I, I like I'm not I, I can't fully explain it musically, but I but I like the analogy because a a good Grateful Dead Dark Star, mm -hmm. which could go on for about thirty yeah. minutes, yep. could go on for five minutes, mm -hmm. twenty minutes, thirty minutes. Uh, there's a little bit of structure, yep. 
and there's a lot of room for improvisation and exploration and experimentation. Um, but what you said earlier is everything about jam bands. Like you have a band of uh, four, five, six yeah. people, depending on which band we're talking about, yep. um, who have to be comfortable enough with each other that they're communicating right? and they're feeding off of each other. Mm -hmm. And some days it's total garbage. Right. And some days it's the most transcendent thing you will ever hear. Exactly. And that's, um, you know, it, it's not, you know, it, it, variation in the quality of concerts is sort of, I think, central to the jam band drama that makes it interesting, that makes it like you're kind of rooting for them Yeah. Um, when, when you go see them. But it's also, I think, in, in ways we don't even fully understand, shapes the quality of the music and the way that they listen and learn from each other and all that. And I think Fishing really increasingly as the years went on got more like the dead in that regard and that their really long improvs didn't have a destination could go on for five minutes or could go on for a half hour you know this past new year's they every few years they'll do a version of a song tweezer that'll be like 35 minutes long yeah. or something like that and and the one this year was yeah. was was yeah it, it's better than anything you've ever done yeah, and I'll upset some fish heads for saying that, that. the the yeah. one from this new year, yeah, yeah. from yeah twelve three, yeah, it, it is really um, impressive. That's it, it's it's they did um, thirteen shows, the Baker's Dozen at Madison Square Garden in um, in twenty seventeen, and they didn't repeat a song um, in thirteen shows, which which people which baffles which it, people. By the way, is not easy to do. No. No, that's it. Actually, did require a little bit more planning, I think, than they usually than they usually did. But um, you know, it, in terms of transcendence, and in terms of you know, this was this was a band I was following around a little bit when I was in college. I, I joke that like I was like a midwestern college kid in the late '90s. I'm almost demographically uh, required to like fish, but um, and and you know, I remember the day of the show how excited I was. And it was and, and and it was just it was mind blowing that there in 2017 they kind of made me feel like I was 22 again. Yeah. Uh, in a way that, that that doesn't all you know I'm you know I'm I'm 41 now and I like watching these webcasts at home a lot of the time like that that'll do it for me. But um but 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 you can. That's have like those an old moments. man thing. Like you. Yeah yeah You yeah. can get a Couch get to door. bed at a decent hour and still exactly. see the show. <laughs> but 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 again and and that's actually a great segue to technology and the ways that, you know, people talk about what's lost and there are things that are lost when, when, when technology advances, the, the culture of trading cassettes of, you know, that, that did create unique bonds among people. Um, and markets aren't perfect. Uh, they make mistakes. That's a feature, not a bug, as I like to say. And, but um, you can't stop it. Yeah. You know, you can't, and, and what you get, instead now is you pay 10 bucks a month for an app that's got every jam band on it an hour after they play the show you could stream the whole thing nugs.net yep or you know fish has their own app uh, live, live fish yep i i unfortunately from my wife's yeah. um accounting of my expenditures yeah i, I buy all this stuff yeah yeah i i, I have both of those um it, it, it is it's funny because the smaller bands it'll take like a week for the shows to go up fish will be like 12 minutes after the show's done yeah. it's up there yeah. um and it's it's actually similar to music in general where you have spotify now where you you know it it's like almost like our sense of entitlement with the internet so it is so fun. like 
we think we should be able to listen whenever we want, wherever we want, to whatever we want. And we almost get a little mad when we can't. When well, some band has decided not to like put their stuff on it or something like that. Well, it's it's radically democratic. It and, is, yeah. And, and young people today, if you're yep. 20 years old today, mm. and you, as an old man, I would tell them stories of yeah. the days when I had to go to a, a box record store <laughs> and, and some some monster yeah. from from yeah. the music industrial complex decided right. that I I could only consider these 50 albums right. or maybe there was 100 but yeah. but now there's an infinite number mm. and you can sort of crowdsource that stuff yeah. and that's and that's why that's why and 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 let's let's wrap this up but yeah. this 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 metaphor of of jam bands cuz yeah. I other than Tucker Carlson and Ann Coulter who right. are famous or infamous deadheads right. um, that entire audience is is probably skewing quite right. progressive there's right. there's some bernie bros in those audiences john fishman fish's drummer is is a, yeah, is a noted sanders supporter he's he's an explicit uh, uh, bernie guy but yep. they they're living this spontaneous yes. order dream they're living a vibrant capitalism that, that where other people care about each other. Yeah. And there, there's something we could learn when we're trying to communicate these ideas yeah. to people sort of outside of our little yeah. bubble. Yeah. And and I think there are some, you know, some of the people I interact with on Twitter or whatever, like, they can learn we can care about each other. We don't have to apologize and say we come first before we say we can help people. You know, we're not talking about taxation and the government. And, and that... Some people's identities have kind of gotten very invested in that, I think. And, yeah. and when I offer a vision of free markets that doesn't let somebody think they're better than other people, that is terrifying in a way. But, um, you know, it, it, it's it's like it, 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 we need to learn and we need to teach others that um, especially in the world we live in now in the ways we connect in the ways we can learn about things that are so you know different than they were 20 years ago 100 years ago 200 years ago that you know are back to doing so we have to change what we mean by doing something and we have to change what we expect by doing something that doesn't mean we have to do nothing yeah um and it's hard it, it, it's hard to put into words and yeah. that's something i struggle with all the time and frankly the reason is it's not for me to put into words it's for me to enunciate a little piece of and somebody else to enunciate a little piece of until we're doing it so and I, I think that it is happening even if it's not happening on our schedule yeah yeah so where do people find your stuff yes so the american institute for economic research so i got to do a little plug um We've actually been around for over 80 years or maybe almost 80 years. I, I'm, I'm the one person who's not going to know the exact year. And that's I, I'm sorry, guys. Uh, but 1930s. We we'll fix it in by, post. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we were founded by uh, called Magnus. I don't know exactly everything. Um, we were founded by Edward C. Harwood, who was an engineer, actually, in the Army. who was at MIT for a while and sort of a self-trained economist. And started us in Cambridge, uh, was an outspoken critic of the New Deal, um, actually went back to the Army during World War II, um, and all the while ended up buying all the way on the other side of the state, um, sort of this fixer-upper mansion that really had gone into disrepair that was owned before that by the Pearson family, who 
this is this is sad and yet this is just an amazing piece of history died on the lusitania uh <laughs> the thing that the ship that sunk that got the u.s partially into world war one um and fixed up this mansion and sort of created this this institute in the middle of nowhere um in in, in an area that's sort of become a like weekend home area for new york but that's that's almost new um in a way and and there we are on this beautiful campus that um you know, he passed away in 1980, and you know how nonprofits go when you have you, – you, you need a direction. You need sort of a common set of ideas, and I think they struggled with that for a little while. Um, you know, you bring in Ed Stringham and Jeffrey Tucker, and sense of purpose is not a problem. Yeah. And, um, you know, and we've put together a network of writers who – you know, a, a lot of the big academics in the free market space, Pete Betke, others, um, and, uh, you know, several of us in-house, Phil Magnus and Peter Roll and myself, um, Bob Hughes, who were just really proud of our work. And, you know, I would say um, our, our commentary from a free market economics kind of standpoint is, is pretty unpar. I mean, lots of places do great work, and I'm not trying to suggest that, but if you go to AIER.org, it's a tough acronym. It's three vowels in a row. That's um, maybe not what you would pick today. AIER.org. Um, you can, we have, you know, several articles a day that I would say are aimed at kind of the interested general public. Yeah. Um, and that's really what I like. You know, I'm the one who I have to like set up the structure to do like the longer PhD stuff. I, I work best when I kind of have one foot in, the academic stuff and one foot in talking to the public um, about it. And um, I really think you guys are creating something special. And I, I've wanted yeah. sort of a modern update of what I would call an Austrian economics think tank. Yeah. And there, uh, there's a lot of uh, very powerful stuff that you guys are yeah. doing, but it's, it's practically applied to yes. the world as it is, mm -hmm. not just this rarefied world of, of that, that some yeah. Yeah. Uh, libertarians live and in. And without casting too many stones, we also don't run around telling people that everything that isn't by these three Austrian economists is a lie. Yeah. Uh, which some people do. Yeah, and it, it, it And it really is, you know, I I think there are, there are such important ideas that come from these economists that are criminally ignored by the field. And a lot of that is that they don't lend themselves well to math. And, you know, senior faculty don't like to hire junior faculty that do things differently than they do. But we have to clean our side of the street. Yeah. And we have to go out and engage these people and talk to them. Um, you know, there, there's people love to get outraged at all these millennials saying they're socialists. Right. And, and I've actually I've been on TV a couple of times talking about this and I've written about it. But if we don't tell them, we have the voice about why they shouldn't be socialists, why why they should support free markets. If we're not out there telling them that, that's why they think <laughs> that's why they're socialists, right? That's and, and so we have to couple our outrage with a little bit of like talking to people and meeting them halfway. And I think we do a pretty good job talking, doing that. talking and listening. And, yes. and let's let's end with a challenge uh, to Jeffrey Tucker, who thinks right. who thinks that he will be abhorred. By by going to a mm -hmm. dead show, uh, the mm -hmm. de the dead are coming to uh, Fenway. Yep, in Boston, what's yep. like less than two hours from mm -hmm. from the the mothership. Yeah, uh, we should challenge Jeffrey to show up for a two night yep. run of the dead. Two he can, nights. Woo. He, yeah, he, he can right. he can wear a double breasted yeah. suit. He can no. wear a oh, bow tie, high high collar. Mm -hmm. But 
But if he wants to understand how markets work, he needs to immerse himself in that. This is true. And he will be amazed and he will have something to say about it that will that will that will surprise us all. And um, and and we'll 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 make it happen if he's, you know, off talking at some conference or something, we'll do it another time. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll make him go. You'll make him go. No, no, we're, we're going to make yeah, him yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cheers. Thanks, All Max. Right. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.